Welcome to Sundial. I'm Carlos Frias. Miami is the place where Nicole Talman found her voice as a poet. For years, you've been hearing her words, but they've been coming out of other people's mouths. She's been a ghostwriter for college presidents and South Florida politicians on either side of the political spectrum. Now she's writing in her own voice, and she's empowering others to find theirs. Nicole is the poetry ambassador for Miami-Dade County. Yeah, that's a real thing. She was appointed by Mayor Daniela Levine-Cava. Nicole created a poet laureate program for the county. Her first choice was a pretty good one, Richard Blanco, who was President Barack Obama's inaugural poet. Nicole also works with the O Miami Poetry Foundation. She helps the organization in its goal to bring poetry into people's lives on a daily basis. And she's doing her part by furiously making up for lost time. She's published three books in three years, including a new one that drops next month in time for the Miami Book Fair. Now, she comes to us as an ambassador from the land of poetry. To talk to us about how living in South Florida helped her find her own voice is the poet, Nicole Talman. Nicole, it's so great to have you here and to talk about poetry for a while. Well, thank you so much for having me, Carlos. It's an absolute pleasure. It's actually a dream of mine to be on uh, WLRN and Sundial. So again, thank you so much. I'm so grateful. Poof, well, your wish is granted. Uh, so tell us about, like, what a great icebreaker, right? Like, to be able to hand somebody your business card and it says, Miami-Dade County Poetry Ambassador right on it. That's like a great, that's a great, that's a great conversation starter. It is. You know, I actually probably need to add that to my business card now that you say that because my business card just says right now, Director of Legislative Affairs. So I'll have to to talk to the mayor about that when I get, when I see her later. That is, that is definitely, that is definitely not as thrilling as a poetry ambassador. You're you're right. But well, law is thrilling too in its ways. (laughs) It is. Um, uh, And we could talk about both, but I'm curious, like the idea for a poetry ambassador, where did that come about? Like, what did, what, what were the pieces that came together that that um, that you and other folks decided like this is a thing that we should have and that we should encourage and there should be a point person for kind of um, making sure that poetry is part of the conversation. So the mayor had the idea. She had seen Amanda Gorman perform. As oh, we the... were just talking about her. This this she she was the inaugural poet for President Biden. Correct. And what a thunderous thunderous poem she gave that uh, that kind of shook the foundations, right? Like Absolutely. And the mayor was very taken by her and said to me, we should have something like that here in Miami-Dade County. And I said, oh, you want a poet laureate? And she said, yes. And I said, okay, well, let me work on that because I wanted it to be a community mm-hmm. uh, project in the sense that I didn't want just I didn't want to just say, okay, this is our poet laureate. I wanted to talk to some people and see who they thought might merit such a post. And so mm-hmm. I got Oh Miami involved. Um, Scott was very helpful, Scott Cunningham, as well as Lisette Mendez from the Book Fair. And we reached out to a few other people in the community, our cultural affairs director at the time, and we just talked about who would make the most sense to be our very first poet laureate of Miami-Dade County. And it was just a resounding yes for Richard. I mean, how can can you pick a more engaged, amazing, wonderful person than Richard to be the very first one? And then my ambassadorship, uh, it was kind of just somebody who, who could kind of be that bridge between mm-hmm. the arts community and government. Mm-hmm. And so the, the mayor wanted someone she could really trust in that role to just to make sure that um, we were able to work on projects that would really benefit the community and also, you know, align with her policy priorities as sure. well. So that's what I've been doing, helping to elevate and celebrate poets and support whatever Richard needs in the community. Right. And and so th- 
thinking about like what so then you take that and you you would kind of establish a poet laureate and then what are your what is like the the mandate like what is the the what is the mandate for the for the poet laureate like what is the kind of thing that you want to try to inspire in your job uh to bring poetry out into the world so I think the biggest thing is connecting community mm. through poetry and involving people, regardless of where they are, maybe in their journey. Mm. I think everybody has a poem in them, right? So can we find ways to take people who may not think of themselves as poets and give them some sort of platform to be able to contribute to poetry? Or if maybe people don't feel like writing themselves, just being exposed to poetry, I think it has a lot of benefits and, um, you know, increasing access to poetry. Of course, we have amazing organizations here already, like Oh Miami, for example. Mm -hmm. But just being able to bridge these political organizations and brand Miami in Miami-Dade County as a literary city. I know that we are already in our minds, but I want people to put us on the same level as a New York or a Chicago. When I say a literary community, Miami comes out of their mouths, right? So Mm -hmm. that's something I'm really trying to work hard on to be able to promote the talent we have here we have enormous talent carlos we yeah. really do and and we you know we we kind of met in person the first time uh, during the oh miami poetry kind of the launching of their Z- zippos mm-hmm. right which is uh, something that w lauren had a hand in in starting and i think that that's like a, a perfect example of like everybody's got a poem in them absolutely right this idea that like well the zippo is uh What's the, you know, the uh, the, the standard is, uh, it's almost like like the idea of a haiku. So like yes. wh- whatever your zip code is, whatever number is in, like say mine is 33143, you have to have that many uh, words in Correct. each in each line. Correct. And it's just, it, it's just a fun way to kind of challenge folks to think a little bit about uh, even where they live, right? I think so. Um, and I really love zip codes. And well, it's it's really cool when you have a zero in your zip code because then you get to use as many words as you want. That's oh, it's like a your, wild card. your wild card, right, yeah. Right. So um, I that project is a beautiful project. I do think also that with Rich Richard's project, the mm-hmm. Miami's Favorite Poems project, we just had an event Saturday at the uh, North Dade Aventura Library. Great. To it was the first cross or by county event we brought Broward County and you actually had Laura the poet laureate of Coconut Creek on recently we did Laura and Richard together hosted co-hosted an event and um, I was there as well and we had some uh, various people read throughout the community and everybody picked this idea of everybody if they maybe don't want to write a poem they have a favorite poem in them something Mm -hmm. they've read that's touched them Mm -hmm. that's what Richard's project is so he's actually well We've created together a poetry page on miamidade.gov backslash poetry. Oh, perfect. Okay, so you can go there, and if you have a favorite poem, a poem that's touched you, if you have any sort of connection to Miami, maybe even if you used to live here but you don't anymore, you can go online and share your favorite poem and why it's important to you, what it means to you. So maybe if you don't write, maybe you've at least read something, and that's a way to connect everybody through poetry, right? Maybe a poem that we love that we've read. Is there a poem that you have in your mind, Carlos, that you love? Oh my God! You put, totally put me on the spot. Now I'm on on the reverse. Uh, not at the moment, but I'm going to think of one during the break. Okay. <laughs> but but I, I love that the event that you set up with Richard. You kind of built it on the Dade Broward line, right? Yes. Because because when you think of Miami Dade, you know, uh, it's we're so much more of a region, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's, I mean, every county is so distinct, but you really kind of reached out 
kind of beyond the post, right? Like you wanted folks to bring to bring in folks from from the region, right? I think it's important to connect not just people in Miami Dade County, but even going beyond those borders, right? Mm. So I I had even said to Richard, it, it would be really cool. Maybe we even continue expansion more. We could do something with um, Monroe, Palm Beach, and Monroe. Uh, at some point, but we'll see. You know, this was just a trial to see how it went, but it was it was tremendously successful. A lot of people showed up, and it's an event where when people are telling stories about the poems that they love, you see how emotional poetry is and how it really does help people through difficult times. Mm-hmm. A lot of the poems that people read, it was something that they found during a difficult moment or something that gave them encouragement to continue on during a difficult time. So I think poetry has that sort of therapeutic ability. Well, it's interesting to me that, that it seems like, uh, you know, the the idea that you had about bringing poetry into, like, people, people not thinking that, they're, that they have poetry in them. Um, so much, like, even your, the, the latest, your book, that is, you have a book coming out in November, but your latest book is kind of plays with that idea. It's, it's, um, it's called Poems for the People. Yes. And it's, and it's just poems to touch people who are, I mean, we have, jurors, people who take public transit, fast food workers, Gen Xers, people with phones in their hand. Like it's this idea that poetry is not this exclusive thing that you that you go to Oxford and you learn and then you recite to each other in smoke filled rooms. Right? Exactly. It's meant to be accessible. That that was the drive behind writing the book was mm-hmm. to make poetry more accessible to people. And the inspiration for it was also my father, who, mm-hmm. when I told him I was the poetry ambassador for Miami-Dade County and I'd written a book of poems, he said, well, I don't really get poetry. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, what if I tried to write something that my father might not be intimidated by, that he might actually enjoy reading? And that's what I set out to do with this book. Well, I love the there very you very much give away a poem for free on the back of the book jacket, so I to do. speak. Uh, it's called a poem for people who don't like poems, and then it says, "Including my dad." Um, and I wonder, you have that copy of your book in front of you. Would you would you feel comfortable kind of reading that poem for us and and uh, kind of give us an idea of what a poem for people who don't like poems are? Sure, I would love to. Thank you for asking me. So. This one is for my dad, Dale. He's probably not listening because I didn't tell him I was going to be on. But <laughs> That's right. Pete, you know, Dale can find us on our daily podcast. That's right. We'll send it to him. We'll do that. He's in Michigan. So, okay. Poem for people who don't like poems, including my dad. So I wrote this poem for your acceptance. Someone told me I shouldn't admit that. Someone also once told me not to use the word poem in a poem. Well, poem, poem, poem. I'm going to use this poem to break the stupid rules. I'm also going to write plainly so everyone can see it. Ready? This is a poem. My dad says he's a simple man and doesn't understand poems. I'm going to write so he can understand this poem. He likes plain talk. He probably still won't like this poem. And likely neither will you. But I'm still going to write it. And if you're the only person who likes this poem... I've made a big difference. This is a poem, and I hope it's no longer for you. That was Nicole Tallman reading from her uh, uh, reading poem for people who don't like poems, including my dad, uh, from her book, um, Poems for the People. Uh, Nicole, um, I want to, I'm curious that your book has been out now for, for a year, and what did your dad think when he read that poem? 
he laughed. <laughs> he loved it. And he said, not bad, which is what is on the back of this book as a blurb. I love that you have like blurbs from like these well-known poets and also it dash my dad who says not bad. <laughs> well, you know, I did I, I did that for a reason because I, I kind of poke fun at the whole blurbing concept. Oh, my God. Publishers put a lot of pressure on you mm-hmm. to get big name poets. So my first book I had I had really big name poets on there. I mean, Richard Richard Blurb did, and it, there were several other people. I won't get into that, but my, this is the same publisher who published my first book, and he said, yeah, get me some big names again. And I was like, okay, fine. And then I thought about it. I said, you know what? No, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to put my dad on the back. I wouldn't be here without my dad. Let's be real, right? So I'm going to put my dad, and this is the best blurb ever. Not bad to such a Michigan dad things, thing to say. <laughs> and um, Jared Beloff and Aaron Birch and Michael Chang, Alex Dimitrov, Alex Adrian Dallas Frandel and Maureen Seaton, my my dear friend who just passed away not too long ago. These are people who really supported me and my poetry. And I felt like it's not always about names. Of course, I'm always grateful for big name people who want to say good things about my work. But why aren't we giving credit to the people who've really helped me to grow as a poet? And that's what I wanted to do. And, and my, my publisher was cool with it. He laughed. He's like, all right, fine. You're being flippant, but we'll, we'll go with it. And, and he entertained me. Cliff Brooks, I love you if you're listening. It, it, creates, it creates a vibe, which I love. Um, our guest today is Nicole Tallman. She's an author and the poetry ambassador for Miami-Dade County. Nicole, I want to ask you, um, you know, obviously you you started publishing during the pandemic. Um, and you've published a, basically three books in three years. But it took you a while to get to that point, right? Like you were not you were not writing poetry and, and trying to get published in the local journal or whatever from when you were a, a kid. Tell me about that journey. Kind of um, where did where did the like your interest in writing kind of come from? I've been writing since I was very small. My mother taught me how to read when I was very young, and she would always recite poetry to me, but I don't think she wanted me to be a poet. And it kind of makes me laugh because I think to myself, well, why did you read all this poetry to me if you didn't want me to be a poet? But uh, I decided that I wanted to be a writer in some capacity. So your, your mom taught you to love, to appreciate writing, because you said your dad is not really, he was like, I didn't really get poetry uh, so your mom was really that person that that um, encouraged you to to love words. She did, yes. And um, I've had really good English teachers along the way as well. But the writing bug bit me early, and I knew I wanted to be a writer in some capacity. And then once I went off to college, I thought I wanted to maybe be a journalist or an English teacher or an English professor. And my mom said, you know, I want you to be able to pay your bills. <laughs> that's that's a very uh, very smart. Uh, you know, a very, a very pragmatic approach for a parent. It right. was. And so I met with a career counselor who said to me, well, what about public relations? Is that interesting to you? I said, I don't really know what that is. And they explained it to me. And I said, well, does it involve writing? And they said, yes. And so I said, okay, well, I'll study that. So I ended up double majoring in public relations and um, French and minoring in business. And so my first job out of school, I was the spokesperson for Hayworth, which is this big furniture company in Michigan. And I ended up being there, like going to New York, Chicago and promoting office furniture. But it involved writing all the press releases and the product descriptions and things like that. And I also wrote for the president of the company. I w- that's how I got into ghostwriting. Were, were you were you a, a kid who, who enjoyed writing growing up or was it just kind of like a, a strong suit that you had or was it a how did that? 
how were you writing before then, before you I started just, doing it for a living? I just always quietly. was writing. I always had journals. I always had diaries. I have ju- diaries full of terrible journal entries and poems. I thought I was Emily Dickinson at one point. When I was 16, <laughs> I went through this like goth Emily Dickinson phase, and I thought I was um, the next Emily Dickinson. So I just, I've always been writing. There's always a voice in my head of, uh, there. there's like this, I don't, I don't know how to explain it to you, but words are always coming to me. Mm. Um, and so I'm, I'm always writing something, but I kind of know when to turn it on and turn it off because you can't be in that space all the time. I mean, I have to be productive at work, right? right but right. Um, I decided to write a book during the pandemic as a way of kind of processing the grief, I think, that I was feeling during the pandemic. I mean, when we shut down, that was a very difficult time. The whole pandemic was stressful yeah. in general. So I, I think I was grieving. My mother passed away in 2017, and mm. then we had the pandemic. So I got to a point where I started writing poetry about my mother's passing, and then I thought to myself, a lot of people are grieving right now yeah. just because the world has changed so much. And so I wanted to write a book that would help people process their grief. And that was what my first book, Something Kindred, was. It's really a nonlinear grief handbook. And then... Because you were, you were dealing with a lot of things. Obviously, you lost the person who first encouraged your interest in poetry, your first encouraged your interest in writing. Exactly. Right. But like I said, I didn't think she ever really wanted me to be a, a poet in that capacity. So I think I felt this freedom to start writing poetry and publishing it under my own name once she actually passed away. Uh, There really wasn't anyone else I was afraid of them encountering my work and then thinking to myself, I don't know, there's this part of me that was just worried that I might embarrass her. My mom was a very private person. Mm. And so putting feelings out there, I thought she, I just didn't know how she was going to react to it. You know, and so when then when she was gone, I thought to myself, well, why am I holding myself back anymore? She's not going to see this. Right. So I just started reading. I knew my dad wasn't going to care. And yeah, now it's just it's like wildfire. To your point, I've put out three books. I started on another one already. So I just I can't stop. It's it's contagious. What what were what were some of the poems that really stuck out to you that spoke to you? You said you you went through a very goth phase uh, (laughs) growing up. What were were some of the poets that you're reading? So. Or, is there, or, is, or did you have a favorite poem that you know that... Oh, wow. Uh, so when I was growing up, I read what my English teachers would present to me. A lot of that was Shakespeare, Emily Dickinson. It was really when I was in college, I think, that I opened up more to some of the poets who have really influenced me. Sylvia Plath has been a huge influence. and Sexton, among the poets who are no longer with us. Um, and then when I, I... I really love the poet Alex Dimitrov. He, he blurbed poems for the people. He's a very accessible poet, also from Michigan. Diane Seuss is another one. She won the Pulitzer recently for Frank Sonnets. Mm. These are poets who really resonate with resonate with me, along with Victoria Chang. Same for Michigan poets, but Maureen Satan is well, another one. All right, I'm going to hold up my hand oh, like the Michiganders do. Right, I love where, that. Where are you on the on the hand? I am from here. This oh, is okay. Hartford, so, Michigan, tiny, Hartford, tiny Mich- town. The very south southwestern part of, of Michigan. Right, which is only 20 miles from where Diane Seuss lives in Kalamazoo. And then I went to college in Grand Rapids, which is, right um, and my dad lives here now. Oh, all way, the way, up way here. at the top. Yeah, this is Sheboygan, Michigan, right before you cross over the Mackinac Bridge to get to the Upper Peninsula. That's where right. my dad is. So, um, yeah, those Mackinac, are the which is spelled Mackinac, but for some reason it's pronounced Mackinac, you know, and then, like Worcester. And, and then it confuses people more because there's the Mackinac with a C and then the Mackinac with a W. Oh, yeah, see, I City didn't know that. City versus island. All right, I'm gonna, that's the, yeah, that's, we'll let it go. That is the limit of my Michigan knowledge. You, you uh, did really well, though. I mean, I had a cousin who went, who went to the University of Michigan, okay. so he brought back a little bit of that, that little bit of that, that uh, Michigan love. So, go blue, I guess, for them. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Go blue. Uh, where, where did you go to college? 
Grand Valley State University. Okay. It's a small college in Allendale. It's it's funny because um, my mom, again, my mom, she wanted me to go to a bigger school. Like uh, I was accepted in Michigan State and University of Michigan, but I stepped on the campus and I come from a town of like 2,000 people in the middle of a cornfield. So I was super overwhelmed by all those people on campus. And I said, I want to go to a smaller school. My mom said, oh, but you're your your options are going to be limited if you do that. And I said, just trust me on this one. I'm not ready for a big a big environment. Oh, that was really a kind of a grown up uh, grown up way of thinking of like, what am I ready for? Which is interesting because now you're in Miami. <laughs> well, I, that's what's so funny because people would never think about th- think this about me. And I've lived in Montreal as well. Um, I've spent a lot of time in New York, Chicago. I've traveled all over the place for my jobs, but now I'm I'm perfectly comfortable in the city. But it was a lot of anxiety for me at first. I mean, you're used to just this very small. I had 70 people in my graduating class, Carlos. That's how <laughs> small my high school was. Right. So that's that's how many people are in line in Chipotle, just exactly. like right around now. So. Right. Uh, what what brought you to Miami? Like, what brought you here? Um, and and how do you think that that how do you think that that changed your like opened up your desire to kind of speak in your own voice? My job reload. Well, I was working for Siemens, which is a German engin- engineering company. Sure. And um, they got bought out by another company called Dematic, and I was part of this executive leadership training program. So they'd put a lot of money. They've invested. They had invested a lot of money in my growth. So they didn't want me to just leave. They gave me a relocation opportunity, and it was the dead of winter. Mm. And they flew me to Munich, to Malvern, Pennsylvania, to Alpharetta, Georgia, and to Boca Raton, Florida. Okay. That's Scott Cunningham territory from Miami. Yes. Oh, and Island, New Jersey. That was the other one. So they flew me to all these places in the dead of the winter, and Carlos... Which one do you think seduced me? Yeah, well, I mean, you're here in front of me, so I know which one won. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So it was a no-brainer. Plus, they gave me the best relocation package and offer. So I went to work for Siemens Communications in Boca Raton, Florida. Mm-hmm. I did that job for six months, and then they said, "Oh, we got some news. You're getting bought out by. We're getting bought out by Nokia." Okay, just uh, yeah, from one giant to another, one technology giant. Yeah, to another. and I said, "Oh Not wow!" And they said, "Okay, so where do you want to go next?" I said, "Yeah, I think I'm done." I'm done with that part of it, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm I'm done with the mergers and acquisitions. So I started looking around, and I found a job at Miami Dade College, working for Eduardo Padron, the the co- former college president. I, I find it interesting too that then you you were speech writing and ghost writing mm-hmm. uh, for Eduardo Padron, uh, um, uh, uh, Carlos Jimenez, mm-hmm. uh, Daniela Limicava. Mm-hmm. Like there is like you have to do some there, there's some muscle stretching right to move between those. Between those people and writing those voices, right? I love it. I really do. There's something so fascinating when I'm when you're a ghostwriter. At least my approach to it is, I spend like the first six months trying to get into that person's head and mm. figure out really what makes them tick and listening to what words they use, so that I can accurately I become their voice. Right? You're not a good ghostwriter if you're if you're putting your own priorities on paper. You need to be that person on paper. So right. I, I I have a, a, an extreme passion for it. I just I just love it. I know I I had the exact opposite experience. I had I'd ghost right now. I mean she she said uh, you know that I I helped her write the book was um, uh, Maria Celeste Arras who's a who's a, a presenter in Spanish. Oh, and I remember that being terrible. Like I I did it once and it was an experience and she was wonderful and I said I'll never do that again because it was too hard to be inside someone else's voice. I I liked writing in my own and I'm wondering like has publishing in your own voice. Uh, made it harder to go back? No, I don't think so, because I put on a different hat for each role. 
I love mm. writing poetry as myself, but I still love that service of writing and making somebody the best person they can be on paper when they don't have the time to write themselves. Mm. I'll tell you, the current mayor, she is a phenomenal writer. She really is. And she does a lot of things herself. And um, I, I, I think that... You, sometimes you write for people who aren't natural writers and sometimes you write for people who are natural writers mm. and, and, and there's a difference of experience there but for me to be a poet is a different it's a different mindset that I'm in when I'm writing poetry versus when I'm writing a speech or um, piece of correspondence or an op-ed even mm. for another person it, it, it's, it's an entirely different experience for me and where I go in my head when I'm writing for myself versus someone else how do you do that is there something that you refer to do you read somebody else's work do you read your past work about that person do you watch them on video how do you do that uh, this is gonna sound really nerdy but I close my eyes and I sort of have them inhabit my body almost like a spiritual change a possession you kind of yeah and then you might need an exorcism afterwards depending on who it is you're allowing into your space right but yeah I kind of just do this okay now I'm this person and I ask this person okay <laughs> I know this sounds this sounds weird but okay allow me to be you for this period of time and then I just say I'm this person in my mind I am I'm Carlos Frias and I'm writing like I'm Carlos Frias oh god I would love we need to hire her to do just do an introduction at some point just to see how close she inhabits my body but that makes so much sense when I was reading your last your your book that's out now um because it like am I wrong or did you write a poem using a Ouija board I did okay all right I was like this reads like like there was a Ouija board involved I did so please that take me down that path yeah so that creeps a lot of people out um (laughs) but but I did yeah I wrote a poem using a Ouija board and I actually have a series of poems and I in, in my my book that's coming out in November each it's divided into four sections and each of those sections starts with a poem that I've written with a Ouija board Oh my God! So, do you believe in the occult and the magical? You I do. do. Yes. Why? I find it fascinating. I, I I think part of it is a fantastical thing. I don't want to accept that people are gone, and I want to be able to con- maintain that line of communication. So maybe I'm deluding myself, but I also have been very connected. I just I have these experiences that I can't quite explain and I'm very intuitive and I feel things. And especially when, I don't know if you've ever been around someone when they're, when they've passed away, but I have, there was a moment when I really felt an energy shift and that really also influenced my belief that there's, there's something else going on and there's a way of continuing communication if you're tapped into it and if you want to. Um, there's when my mother passed away, I was next to her the whole time. And there was this, the oddest thing happened, Carlos, as she took her last breath, it was not much after that. There was this huge, huge whoosh of energy. I am not kidding you. I felt it go almost like out. I could feel it coming, the energy shifting. And then the same night that she died, I woke up like at one o'clock in the morning. Obviously I couldn't sleep. I was very upset. And the entire electricity in the house, Hmm. it jolted and the microwave died. And like that, that really, you've, you've kept that, you've, you've kept that inside you and you've written about it. But it wasn't, there wasn't a storm or anything. That's why I'm telling you it was such, it, it really struck me. And then even after that, I get these messages that I can't explain. It's like this 
this I don't want to say it's like hearing a voice because it's not that it, it I just can't explain it to you like, like there, there are these moments where I feel like a certain presence and I feel like people are still here and I think there are people who choose to connect to you in that way and people who don't like some people I think they leave and they don't want to be interacted with anymore some people are just cutting themselves off but then there are other people I think that are opening to continuing these conversations I don't know I kind of feel like time doesn't really end and I feel like it's possible to be on multiple planes of existence at the same time too I know this might sound nuts to people who are listening but I I just I don't know I don't I just kind of think that time is continuous it's interesting because you of of the poems in that book you you've like I said there's a couple that you even write about at the very end that you're like yeah I used a, a Ouija board to write this one and and there's a poem for the dead including mm-hmm. your mom um, I was wondering do you would you feel comfortable reading one of those works uh, sure. today while we're here um, either the one for your mom or whatever you feel is um, kind of takes us to that place that that puts you in the uh, in touching with putting you in touch with that other realm sure I'm gonna I'll read the poem for the dead including my mom since I read one for my dad and I'll tell you the Ouija board poems themselves they don't read well out loud they're more for the page yes they look great it's a poem for too dark is, right is a wonderful one where it's almost like question and answer questions on the left answers on the right and it definitely works more uh, looking at it visually correct so, so yeah. folks you have to, you'll have to just buy the book absolutely right? thanks for that plug so <laughs> poem for the dead including my mom since we'll likely never be together again anywhere but here What season were you most alive in? Is there morning or color where you are? Do you have freedom? If so, how are you using it? Would you rather be a bird or an angel? Permanent day or never-ending night? If there are hours, when are your most difficult? Do you know who you were before this? Why or why not? And now that there's fire, are you in heaven or hell? More time or less? Do you still feel happiness? Would you return to Earth, this dream, or anywhere else? That's Nicole Talman reading from her poem, Poem for the Dead, including my mom from her book, For the People. Can you talk to me a little bit about what you were feeling and who, like, what voice you were in when you were writing that? Sure. So one of the things that I do a lot as a poet is ask questions. And this particular poem was inspired by a poet I really love, uh, Alex Dimitrov, who I mentioned earlier, had blurbed this book. And he's a very, I find, accessible poet in a lot of ways as well. And he had a poem called Poem for the Reader. Mm. And it was a series of questions that he was asking people who he thought he might never meet or ever see again. He only knew them through the way of them both sharing the space in the book, right? Mm-hmm. I thought, well, that's a really interesting concept. I have a lot of questions for people who are no longer here with me, including my mother. And there are so many questions I would like to ask her, but maybe I don't have the ability to be able to hear the answers to those questions. And so this is what that poem was, asking her a similar set of questions of things that I wish that she could answer, but I can't quite hear those answers. This one line from it, more time or less, where you're asking her, would you have, to me it read like, would you have, would you have wanted more time or was it too much? Correct. Less time. Correct. And it just, there's something about that that really moved me. Uh, our guest today is Nicole Talman. She's an author and the poetry ambassador for Miami-Dade County. We've been reading, uh, she's been reading from her book, and we've been getting very spiritual, and we've been getting very deep, and we've been talking about our late parents. And, uh, and hopefully it puts us in a place to think about uh, some of those, some of the things that move us and move us to 
do things like write and write poetry. Um, you know, I was uh, one of these things that was interesting to me. One of our, our producers today, Julia Cooper, was saying like, "Is uh, when you write a poem, is it something that you feel that is necessary to be read on the page? Like that that Ouija board poem is one that only works. I feel like it really only works if you're looking at it on the page. Other ones are read in performance. And is there is there a right way and a wrong way? I don't want to be too prescriptive with people, but I will say I do think there are poems for the page and poems for the stage. Hmm. And I think when I'm writing, I always have the audience in mind. And there are certain poems. I mean, if you if you were to insist read this Ouija board poem, I would do it for you. I just don't <laughs> think that it's 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 not one that I necessarily intended for performance purposes. Right. Whereas some of the other ones are more intentionally for that performance aspect of, of poetry. I, it's very hard these days to just be a poet for the page, there's an expectation that when you're a poet, you're going to perform in some capacity, right? I feel like that, like a poem like that, that there's, it would require almost staging, like the Ouija board one would almost require staging. Mm-hmm. Like I've been thinking about it, like you and I could do it. In other words, like I'd have to be the voice, you know, the, the Ouija board answering in the voice. Um, so I, I think that there's there's probably pieces to that, right? Yeah, like that's a, actually, that's a cool idea. It's an interactive concept. I hadn't thought of that, um, but Definitely when I'm writing, I I try to write most of the poems to be able to be read aloud because I know that there's a pressure these days for Mm -hmm. us to do this. You can't just write a book and then not ever read your poems and not perform them. People just aren't going to – publishers aren't going to go for that, right? Right. Uh, So – I think that as I'm writing, I do always have that audience in mind and then the final delivery. And there have been poems where I've written them. And sometimes I'll do this experimentally. So when you're writing a book of poetry, one of the things that you usually do is you you pitch your poems to literary journals, Mm -hmm. right? So and then you kind of see which ones stick. And then maybe from there, you're going to actually take those together, develop a narrative thread and, and create a book out of it. For me in particular, I notice which one's audiences really react to and I've edited them based on audience reactions too like sometimes you'll write a line and you think it's going to land and then no one reacts to it and then you try it again you're like wait a minute I thought this is a really good line but then I'm not getting any reaction it doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to take it out because if I really feel strongly I'll leave it in but when you're reading there are poems that were in this book, the Poems for the People, and I actually changed them and put them in Versace, my next book, because I wasn't done with the poem. I thought I was done, and then I read it to a group of people, and then I realized, oh, wait, there was something in there I missed. I want this. And so I looked at it again and retitled it. I think that there are other poets who do this too, but just just a few poems. Some poems, I, I don't know that I'm ever finished with them entirely. I'm like, okay, I'm going to print it. Let's, let's, you know, put a put a fork in it, move on. Mm-hmm. But I might revisit it, you know? Yeah, yeah. There's, I, I think, maybe context. Context of a different, of a different title, being in a different book, mm-hmm. surrounded by another poem before or after. Actually, thinking about this poem, uh, Poem for Too Dark, mm-hmm. I think that would work as a good, as a two-person poem. So, would you like to do it with me? Oh, kind wow. Of... We're going to read this together. Yes. Are, are you going to be too dark? I will, Would you like me to be the reader? Would you like me to be the Ouija board? No, I want the you to be. I, I definitely want you to be the Ouija board because that's the most fun. And I, I like to be the one to ask the questions anyway. So, okay. Poem for too dark. Who are you? One from your past. What is your name? Too dark. Are you a good spirit? No. Do you want to harm me? No. What do you want me to know? Unclear. What is my purpose in this life? 
Hmm. Future hazy. Are you okay? No. Can I help? No. Can I speak to Sylvia Plath? No. Can I speak to my mother? Yes. How do I talk to her? Ask. When will I die? Summer. How will I die? Leave me now. Wow. Whew. That was Nicole Talman and me reading Poem for Too Dark from her book, For the People. That was kind of fun. That was really fun. All right, let's do that at the next uh, Oh Miami then. Absolutely. Let's talk to Scott. Scott, we need some Ouija board poems. <laughs> <laughs> so take me through that one because it is it, it does like any any Ouija board experiment. It raises the hair on the back of my head, uh, back of my neck. Um, specifically, this idea of, of um, like you mentioned Sylvia Plath. We've talked about your mom, but you mentioned Sylvia Plath. You mentioned Sylvia Plath a lot I in do. this book. <laughs> How did you become, like, what is it about her as a writer uh, that just caught your attention so much? She, there's so many things about Sylvia Plath. I, first of all, people think Sylvia Plath and they automatically think of suicide. Head in the oven, yeah. Right, which is so unfortunate because she actually was a very vibrant person. If you read her, there's a book called Red Comet. Mm. by Dr. Heather Clark that is absolutely phenomenal. And I think anyone who reads it will get an entirely different idea of who Sylvia Plath was. She obviously suffered from from depression. I mean, it's not necessarily entirely clear what her medical diagnosis mm-hmm. was, but she she had to be, I mean, she, she attempted suicide, uh, obviously more than once, and um, she was on antidepressants and she was just such an amazing powerful voice her ability to create images her linguistic agility every she's just to me one of the most fascinating poets in the sense and she actually didn't really she only produced one book of poetry while she was alive I don't know if you know that or not but Colossus was the only book that came out while she was alive. Mm. And um, Bell Jar came out towards the end of her life. And then Ariel, which is the book that she is most known for, did not publish while she was well, while she was alive. Her mm. husband, Ted Hughes, actually, um, she left a manuscript on, on the table um, right before she committed suicide. And um, what, what he is found it, it. Yeah, what is it about her that spoke to you I, and and I should say it, like there's that one point where you, you know one of your poems uh, talks about uh, scratching Ted Hughes's last name from her grave so clearly you have opinions uh, but what is it about her work that that and 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 about that relationship that really uh, stuck out to you I think Sylvia Plath did a lot for women I don't know that some people argue whether or not she was a feminist because I guess her values at the time didn't necessarily seem to align with that philosophy but I think that she did a lot for women along with Anne Sexton both of them giving this ability for women to really speak their truth and to write about topics that at the time were not written about women didn't talk about things like pregnancy and poems for example at the time or their mental health struggles or what it was like marriage what marriage was like I I think that she paved a pathway for a lot of women to be able to speak their truth rather than just writing Mm -hmm. things like you know hey there's an owl in the tree right Mm -hmm. she she really gave that that confessional she's one of the confessional poets right that 
both Plath and Sexton were the confessional poets, and I think they gave women permission to to really speak our truths, and that really resonates with me a lot. And the fact that she was so brave to talk about her her struggles, Anne Sexton and, and Sylvia Plath both, I, I it really resonates with me how raw they are on the page, mm. how how willing they are to expose things that are not talked about well at the time we're not talked about we've come a lot way a lot you know we've come pretty far as a society in terms of talking about these these certain struggles i mean i've i've, I've struggled with depression at, at points in my life as well so i think that that resonates with me yeah and i and i we should say that you know if you or uh, or someone you know needs help you know the national suicide prevention lifeline exists and you just press 988 on your phone uh, it's just 988 um and you can call and get that get that help that you need and we want you to have it um your work is very personal like that uh and you tap into those those things exactly like those those moments you you really do make yourself vulnerable like i said you put you make yourself vulnerable regarding your dad right on the back of your book um what is it what did it do for you as a form of expression to be able to deal with those things on the outside rather than what's going on in the inside of your head i think it was really freeing in a way because Mm. we some people talk about things more than others. I come from Michigan, which is a place where people are kind of taught to keep their feelings to themselves and not necessarily be overly expressive. And so I think putting those down, but then also being able to have other people read those poems. And then when I am reading them and how other people react to them, it it, it sort of creates this community of people who have similar thoughts and feelings. And you and I think you feel less alone. Hmm. Right. Yeah. There's that there's that poem uh, in there where there's like a since there's a poem for everyone there's a so- poem for soft boys yes and it's like you know you talk about this um, this culture of masculinity where it's you know big trucks and shooting deers and you know I, I just from a, having experience with folks uh, you know drinking the blood you know and there's you talk about the the um, you know the, the the smells of winter and mm-hmm. rust and blood and um, and I think that that's like you're kind of speaking for folks who who you know. Who you kind of seen? I'm curious, like, were there people like that in your life that you were kind of seeing and speaking through? Uh, yeah, well, the poem for the soft boys I wrote specifically for those people in Michigan who are not the kind of boys who hunt and fish and are overtly masculine. Um, it, it was, in a way, a poem. It was originally called Rifle Season. Hmm. I actually originally published it under in this journal called Tramp Set out under the title Rifle Season. But then, as I was reading it, I realized this poem was more for these, these in particular, people who weren't necessarily into that gun culture. And um, it, Soft Boys also, I think, I, I also my dad had, he he would call people who weren't like masculine tough guys all oh, that's a soft boy you know mm. but those are the kind of guys I always resonated with the most I like those more gentle types who are more sensitive and don't necessarily want to just go in the woods and chew tobacco and hunt <laughs> and shoot guns it's not my thing at all so yeah I like I said there's a poem in this book for everyone and that's my poem for those boys I really appreciate who haven't bought in so much to this somewhat toxic masculinity, dare I say it. Yep. So talk to me about how your work has evolved. Like writing on that, and you have a book coming out next month. Uh, it's titled, pronounce it. It's Versace, like Versace, mm-hmm. but with an F okay. instead of a V. It's like this word. So one day I was walking down the street with one of my friends, and we saw this group of people, and they were wearing these clothes that were obviously supposed to be 
Versace mm-hmm. by the design, but you could tell it wasn't real, right? And Versace's expensive. Let's let's not, you know, let's not pretend. So I was like, wow, that's some Versace right there. And my friend started <laughs> laughing and I said, you know, that's kind of an interesting word. I'm going to write that down and do something with it and see if it goes anywhere. And it just kept coming back to me, Versace, Versace. I was like, I have to do something with this. So I wrote a poem called Versace. And then from there, I just kept exploring what it means to be in Miami Hmm. as a person coming from a culture that's so different from Miami and these roles that we play uh, to fit in or sometimes not fit in. And it was kind of a little bit of a of, of cultural satire, but also this speaker's journey from the time of first getting here and all these reactions that we have to all these things that are different from what we're used to, mm-hmm. to in the end, this final acceptance of, okay, yeah, I really like it here. I like these things that are different. I've really come to embrace this place and, you know, the grass that's fake. Right. There's right. fake grass. Let's not lie. There's fake grass. Looking at you, Brickle. Yeah. There's, uh, you know, a lot of plastic surgery, a lot of other Looking things. Looking at you, all of Miami. Yeah. Well, so, yeah. <laughs> is, it, is there, a, is there whether it's the, the title poem or is there something from that? from that book that you have that you have with you that you'd like to read today at all to kind of whet our appetites for what's next? Okay, yeah, I can, I'll read the, the title poem for you because I think that one, it's light. And, I, you know, we've done a lot of heavy, so let's do Versace. Absolutely. Versace. I moved to Miami because of the Golden Girls and the Conga. True story. Versace and a job offer may have played a small role. I took a government job, so I'm wearing Versace. That's not a typo. I can't afford the real Versace. At least not in suit form. Forgive me, Gianni. So much here is plastic, it's almost impossible for nature to stand out. No, I didn't move here for the weather. That was actually a deterrent. I spent the first year in the A.C. anyway. I miss the Four Seasons. I miss my mother. She died six years ago. Ovarian cancer. It was awful. What cancer isn't? Maybe the astrological sign? I should know. I am one. I don't think I'm awful. You can ask my partner. Yes, I'm gay. She's a Pisces. She may be biased because her moon is in cancer, though. That's Nicole Tallman reading her her, uh, her poem, Versace, from the eponymous book, uh, upcoming in, uh, in November. Um, talk to me about how your perspective on Miami is changed because there is there is a fakeness to it but then you also said that Miami's cool and it's, and it's a place where you can be yourself yes so like tell me about that flipping that switch to go you know to to seeing the other side of it which is the not Miami Vice side because I think that people here are real when you just sit down and talk to them there's a lot of glitz there's a lot of glamour but that's not everyone when when I first came to Miami I was spending a lot of time on South Beach right oh, because that's where yeah. people tell you to go so mm-hmm. of course you're seeing this different set of people. But then when I started sitting down and talking to, I don't want to say real people because those are real people too, but you get what I mean, more everyday type people. Mm -hmm. I started to see, okay, this idea of Miami just being this place where everybody's rich, everybody has plastic surgery. uh, It's not true. Yeah. At all. But that's what we're sold. Mm -hmm. You know, the idea of what Miami is and then the reality of what Miami is, I think a lot of it is affected by where we're spending our time and what we're seeing, right? So I I, I love Miami. I I have been here a while and I I don't see myself going anywhere. Yeah, if you're not having a great time, you're spending time in the wrong parts of Miami. Absolutely. Um, Kind of before we go here, is there a – what are you looking forward to at the book fair here in a month from now? Oh, well – 
I always love uh, Lisette Mendez. I just have to give her a shout out. She is the new executive director. And along with um, Marcy Calabretta Bello, who does the poetry program, of course, I'm excited. I mean, we have a lot of cool celebrities coming. So that's always cool. But I'm most excited about the poetry. I'm, I'm sure that that doesn't surprise you at all. So uh, the poetry programming this year is amazing. Great. Well, I will uh, we'll look forward to to hearing some great poetry and hopefully hearing some of your work at the book fair next month. Thank you, Nicole, so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. Our guest today was Nicole Tallman. She's an author and the poetry ambassador for Miami-Dade County. And that's Sundown for Tuesday, October 24th. Leslie Obay-Atkinson is our lead producer. Elisa Baena is our producer and social media editor. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's VP of News, and Katie Munoz is our director of live programming. Peter J. Meritz is WLRN's VP of Radio, and Richard Ives is our engineer. Our theme music is by the Miami Afro-Cuban funk band Palo at gopalo.com. Coming up tomorrow on the program, Poems for Bread. All this month, Zach the Baker has been trading a loaf for a haiku. He joins us to read some poetry and talk about it. I'm Carlos Frias. Good vibes only. Public Media.